approximately 4.7 million women, so 30% of all women 15 years of age and older, report that they have experienced sexual assault at least once since the age of 15. That's compared to just 8% of men. Yikes. Yes. Welcome to The Scaries presented by Razor Co. I'm Skylar. And I'm Talitha. In each episode, we tackle alarming, inconceivable, questionable, shocking, and scary statistics relating to impacting and intervening with the lives of women and girls worldwide. You'll hear the scary truth, take away tools and tips, and learn more about what you can do about it. The Scaries is an opportunity to raise awareness, share resources, and collectively use our power as women and supporters of women to make some real change. We'd also like to note that the views expressed in this podcast are solely our own opinions and that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Also, there are a lot of triggering content that we'll be going over in this um, podcast, so please watch with caution. As straight, cisgendered, white, able-bodied settler women, we are aware of the privilege we have, and we want to use this platform to spread awareness about the scary reality women from around the world face in different life situations. Why? Because sometimes nothing is scarier than being a woman. Welcome to episode one. We are so excited to share this space with you. It's been, it feels like a little bit of a long time coming. We've tried to record this a few times, but as busy moms and uh, and working and all that kind of stuff, we have tried to record in the evenings and then we get too tired and we can't. It's true. So we're here with you um, in the morning with our coffees and we are ready. We are perky. We're, we're doing it. We're excited. <laughs> yeah. So Maybe tell us a little bit about Raise Her Co. Sky and why we're here and what we're doing. For sure. So Raise Her Co. We started Raise Her Co. about four years ago. Um, we've known each other since I don't know a long time. <laughs> don't the say dog's the, age. Don't we, say the age. We went to high school together. Um, but yeah, we've known each other for many years, many decades. I would say almost. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we met in high school. And what really um, kind of bonded us was this common outlook on life and this common perspective that, you know, we felt like other a lot of other women or a lot of girls our age didn't have. And it was really the confidence, a uh, shared confidence and perspective to speak up, mm-hmm. um, know that, you know, we, because we were women, could do anything that a guy can do or anyone else could do in our in our environment um, and take the lead on things, um, help, you know, build up and support others around us. And so when we looked at kind of why we had this common shared perspective, it really boiled down to the way that we both had these strong female mentors in our life, mm-hmm. which were our moms. Yes. We have many other female mentors as well, but those were kind of the key influences, I would say, for really? us. So fast forward a couple <laughs> years later uh it was i think international women's month uh and or day or month but it was all over instagram and we saw this quote that kind of ignited the whole thing which was let's see if i can mem- have it memorized starting a girl gang of women aggressively supporting other women hands up if you're in because if we get enough people we're totally getting jackets and we totally, and we totally did. So <laughs> that was this like the igniting factor um that's really started uh, this idea of Raise Her Co. Mm-hmm. So do you want to share kind of like what our purpose is and all that? Yeah, totally. 
So really, we are all about leaders raising leaders. And uh, we over the years, as we've developed Razor, we've realized that that kind of comes in a few different ways. So first, it's all about having those connections and having that community. Um, we in a, in a study recently, we're going to talk a lot about studies and statistics, so <laughs> bear with us. But in a study that was recently published, it said that two of the biggest barriers for women to access and use their leadership skills is confidence and connection. And so we're really about creating spaces where women can come together and make those connections, whether it's through a formal mentorship program or informal mentoring, um, just hanging out and sharing stories. Uh, we're all about, again, intergenerational. So we have our moms on our side. And that's really kind of how we model the way of that. It's not just young people doing it, or it's not just you have to be of a certain age. Everyone can be a leader at all times. Um, the other way we do it and kind of use our purpose is through advocacy. So when women specifically don't feel safe or can't um, access certain spaces or I don't know, a variety of different things, uh, that impacts their way to move through the world and access their leadership skills. So sometimes people ask us, you know, what does sexual violence have to do with leadership? It has a lot to do with leadership. You can't be a leader if you aren't safe in your own body, if you don't have body autonomy, if you aren't safe at home, that sort of thing. So everything kind of comes back to leadership. Uh, what am I missing, Skylar? Oh, man, uh, we're, we're, we're busy. Our tagline in a nutshell is leaders raising leaders. Mm -hmm. So really, that's what we're all about. I would say the only other piece that um, is kind of in, or integral to our purpose is redefining the definition of what a leader is to less about um, seeing it as your job to hit this certain title or the status and more about seeing it as your job to raise up and build up other leaders around you. So it's more about a skill set, of, a set of behaviors versus a mm -hmm. title or a status. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what we're all about in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. um, we really wanted to start this podcast in a way to advocate for women, to share kind of the real truths about what we're going through, because I feel like I get all the time, well, women and men are equal. Like, what are you talking about? Right. It's like, no, if you actually look at the data, the research, it's not quite there. And, you know, we're lucky to be in Canada because we are one of the top countries in terms of the gender um, equality index. I don't know the yeah, index. Like um, we we're one of the top countries, but when you look around the world, we're not even we're not even close. Um, so yeah, we're going to be sharing a lot of the real scary truths that mm -hmm. uh, women face because we're women, and we're also going to be talking about what we can do about it, and what we can do to change those things, and move the dial to become more equal and really just support and lift up women in general. So yeah. that's why we're here. Yeah, totally. We're not just here to shock you. We want to take away, want you to take away something that you can then put forward in your life. Um, and because education and actual action is how we are going to change the world and make a difference. So with that, let's get into it. So today's episode is going to be heavy. I'm not going to lie, um, but it's super important that we highlight and talk about it. And it's really, uh, really hits home for us specifically mm -hmm. because of where we live. So uh, our, for our first episode of the Scaries, we would like to draw attention to the alarming and rising statistics on violence against women and girls, specifically focusing in on intimate partner violence. Um, this human rights violation occurs relentlessly, cutting across all corners of the world. The repercussions are, are severe, impacting uh, the physical, economic, and psychological well-being of women and girls, hindering their ability to fully engage in society. Mm -hmm. The scale of this issue is staggering, leaving Im an immeasurable impact on families, individuals, and society at large. 
recent crises like COVID-19, pandemic, to conflicts, to environmental changes, we've only exasperated uh, this problem even further. Um, and it's introduced new threats and worsened things, to be honest. So in this episode, we'll unpack who's most vulnerable and what we can do to minimize this violence and mm -hmm. support victims. Um, so we're based in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. Mouthful. Yes, you heard that right. Not Saskatchewan. Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. We're a smallish prairie town with about 250,000 people. Um, and so the topic of women in uh, violence against women is very top of mind for us because in our province, we have the highest rate of intimate partner violence of all the prairie provinces or all the Canadian provinces. Um, and it's actually, I think, double. And mm -hmm. I think I'll get into it later in the yeah. stat, like double the national average of, of what we have in Canada in our province. So, um, yeah, that's why we're, mm -hmm. we're starting things off with this. Um, and one thing else we want to note is that uh, intimate partner violence is just one, sadly, just one piece of the puzzle mm -hmm. of gender-based violence that exists. So gender-based violence is just a big umbrella that has femicide, cyber violence, sexual violence, child marriage, genital mut mutilation, all kinds of things um, specifically in impacting women. And so we're going to dig into this one piece, but stay tuned for other episodes. Where we're going to get into those other types of violence as well. Exactly. So like I said, Saskatchewan, it's it's not fun here right now to be a woman in terms of um, no. what's happening. Uh, the rate of intimate partner violence is over double the national average, like I said. And to put that in perspective, that's 724 victims per 100,000 people. And the national rate is 344 per 100,000 people. Um, so to paint a picture of what this looks like, we recently met with a multi-million dollar company, uh, event company, uh, locally here in, in Regina, and we've learned an alarming fact about our city. Mm, tell me about it, Sky. Yeah. What did we learn? So uh, one of our city's premier events, which is actually happening in like, I think in a week or sometime Double soon yeah. in, in November, happens every year in November, um, it's called Canadian Western, Western Agribition. This is the one of the largest cattle and agricultural trade shows. Mm -hmm in Canada. Um, it's known as the beef, best beef show on the continent or the largest livestock show in Canada. So it's a big, big deal. And it brings a ton of economic um, development into our, into our city and um, hosts like 120,000 visitors across the world. Which is like crazy because our city is 250,000. Right. And then we like have another 50% come into our city. That's crazy. crazy. And I mean, we are a very, like we're a big agricultural town. Like my mm -hmm. dad's a farmer. Like this is, this is where we are. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. So this is a big event for us. Um, but the scary th thing that we learned from meeting with this event company is that uh, when Agribition comes on, comes to town, it has the highest rate of sexual violence over any other event in the city or any other time in the city. And something like 300 sex workers are brought into the city to be trafficked uh, solely for a six-day event. Um, and this another sad thing is the second event to this, the second type of event to Agribition that brings in this type of, of peak in sexual violence is our city's Canadian uh, football league games. It's like, it's so crazy because I think, I think you know that things like this, or you assume like things like this happen at events. But I think that one of the biggest things for me when we were talking with that organization is that like people like 
bystanders or just don't understand that that impact and so they might not even be knowing what they're looking at Mm -hmm. which is absolutely crazy totally um so anyways with that uh, it all starts to kind of make sense when we learned um this very important statistic uh which is that two-thirds of canadians know a woman who has experienced physical or sexual abuse yeah (sighs) uh so i mean arguably if we had one other person in this space, they would have had sexual or physical abuse. Uh, it's safe to say that we all have a friend or know a friend or a friend of a friend uh, who shared this intimate truth with us. And furthermore, approximately 4.7 million women, so 30% of all women 15 years of age and older, report that they have experienced sexual assault at least once since the age of 15. That's compared to just 8% of men. Yikes. Yes. And that's getting even scarier. Or what's sorry, what's getting even scarier is that with the growth of technology and human trafficking um, and like the dark web and all of these wild things, there are even more ways women and girls are experience violence, experiencing violence and harassment. According to the Canadian Women's Foundation, and that's actually an organization that we reference a lot throughout Mm -hmm. this episode, they have so much great information. So I highly recommend you check them out. Um, 184 women and girls were violently killed in 2022, primarily by men. That's one girl or woman every 48 hours. I literally have goosebumps. Every two days, a woman or a girl is killed. Like, that's not acceptable how have it's, we not heard this stat before like i yeah. don't understand how is that how not, not like something that's like broadcast every yeah. day yeah i don't know uh it's obvious like as skylar said she has goosebumps it's beyond chilling we cannot should not and we will not ignore it again which is why we are here today research shows that women disproportionately experience the most severe forms of intimate partner violence such as being choked being assaulted or threatened with the weapon or being sexually assaulted like no. <laughs> Anyways, um, although uh, homicide rates are genuinely are generally higher for men uh, over than women, women are at a much higher risk of homicide by their male intimate partners. And even scarier, women and girls are disproportionately killed by someone they know, namely an intimate partner or a family member. So men generally will be killed by maybe an acquaintance or you know having a bar fight and something happens. Mm-hmm. Women are primarily killed by someone that they know like watch watch what's going on yeah Yeah. so when we go even further and apply an intersectional lens another saddening reality is that gender-based violence disproportionately affects women and girls based on specific aspects of a woman's identity that make them a primary target so I think it's important that we define intersectionality yes. for our folks listening. Yeah, totally. Um, so intersectionality or intersectional theory was first coined in 1989 by American civil rights advocate and leading scholar of critical race theory, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. So intersectionality overall refers to the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, gender, location, ability, and how they overlap and intersect, often creating unique experiences of either discrimination or privilege. So there's actually a really great TED Talk from Kimberly called The Urgency of Intersectionality uh, as it relates to violence against the Black community in the States, and I highly recommend it. It's a very good watch. So do you think that covers it? Yeah, totally. Great. 
So moving along, I wanted to note that we will share some harrowing statistics about these identity aspects on their own, meaning we won't dive into the intersectionality of it all. I think that will take us like this will be a five hour episode yeah. <laughs> otherwise. Uh, still, we can't forget that the likely overlapping of these elements to women's identities and that there are so many women who have many or all of these elements and thus face even higher rates of victimization than what the stats show or even what's being reported or tracked or mm -hmm. looked into. Uh, we should also note that while we researched this episode, it was not always easy to find reports on those fr from those who are most silenced. So we do our best to showcase the real and genuine truths of women and girls as it relates to intimate partner violence, but we obviously can't speak for other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. So this is our attempt to share and highlight what we found. So Sky. Can you start us off with some of the scaries impacting Indigenous women? Yes, you bet. And I'm going to warn you all now, I have a lot of scary things to say on this one. Oh, goody. So when we look at who among women in general, all types of women, are most victimized, Canada's National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls reports share that Indigenous women and girls are 12 times more likely to be murdered or missing than any other woman in Canada. 12 times more and 16, 16 times, you can't hear me, I'm like super loud now, 16 <laughs> times more likely than white women. 16 times. Yeah. And just 12 times more than any other woman. So between 2009 and 2021, 490 Indigenous women and girls were victims of homicide. That was reported. There's probably more than that. Mm -hmm. This translated into the rate of 4.27 Indigenous women and girls killed every or per 100,000 um, Indigenous women and girls in the population, a rate that was six times higher than for their non-Indigenous counterparts. Like I, That's absolutely wild. I think also, you know, folks who maybe are listening, maybe you're from abroad or you don't know. Um, but the fact that we have like a whole tribunal that looks into missing and murdered Indigenous women is very crazy. And I think telling of what the climate is here in mm -hmm. Canada. Um, but it's also should be noted that the violence experienced by Indigenous women, girls, and then folks from the 2S LGBTQIA plus community see there's a little intersection mm -hmm. um is arguably i think even legally now defined as genocide wow yeah genocide <gasps> the world that we live in today mm -hmm. tell ya um yeah so it is super eye-opening when we dig into these stats um when we look at specifically the murders of indigenous women and girls um 87% of the homicides of Indigenous women and girls were solved compared to 90% of cases where victims were non-Indigenous. So we're even solving more cases um, for non-Indigenous than Indigenous people, which is very sad because they have so many more deaths. Um, and reports, these similar reports also found that homicides of Indigenous women and girls are less, like to, less likely to result in the most severe murder charges. What? So, yeah. So not only are we not solving as many cases, but when they are solved, they're not getting um, very severe or strict or oh, what God. they should be getting in terms of charges. So when the victims were Indigenous, police uh, recommended um, a first-degree murder charge half as often as they recommended that for non-Indigenous women. So the less severe um, charges that they were getting for Indigenous cases were second-degree murder, manslaughter, um, yeah, they weren't even getting the highest offense, which is Ugh. like boggles my brain. I think that like, 
and again, this is something that we will hopefully get into in another episode because this is like, it, it's a crazy thing that's happening in Canada. And I think is so, it's not talked about enough. Um, and I know that like manslaughter and second degree and first degree murder charges are, they change based even like against the States or Australia or wherever. Um, but that manslaughter i think is like normally when people get into like a car accident and kill somebody and not that that's like it was voluntary right yeah yeah and like in an intimate partner violence situation i feel like you don't accidentally kill your intimate partner um anyways that's just my own yeah interesting uh so thank you for that sky um that is not a great way to start this episode but i think something that is super important to cover Mm -hmm. so another group of women who may be more vulnerable to intimate partner violence due to economic dependence language barriers uh, and a lack of knowledge about community resources are immigrant women so gender-based violence is actually considered a universal health and societal crisis and a violation of human rights. A study published in the Journal of Family Violence in January of 2023 named domestic violence more dangerous than cancer, motor vehicle accidents, war, and wow. malaria. Wow. Uh, yeah. Which is great. Uh, so depending on their situation, newcomers traumatized, you know, maybe by war or oppressive governments from where they're coming from are much less likely to report physical or sexual violence to authorities for fear of further victimization and deportation. The lack of attention to these experiences of violence against women and immigrant populations creates unique problems in a richly multi- multicultural society such as Canada, where immigrants comprise 22% of the Canadian population. And arguably that, might, that status might have even changed based on all of the you know, issues that are happening across the ocean from us in Ukraine and in Palestine and Israel and all of that. So we, I know we bring in a lot of um, refugees. So that stat is probably even higher right now well it's just sad to me when we think about like we said earlier how canada is one of the top countries in terms of getting gender equality we're we're working on it Mm -hmm. we're we're close we're there when we compare to a lot of other countries but when we look at the countries that these immigrants are coming from it's Mm -hmm. like i can only imagine what they're living with on the daily when it term when it comes to not just intimate partner violence but just general Mm -hmm. inequalities not accessing education like so many things that where they think that this is the norm Mm -hmm. like it probably is the norm for them yeah having that yeah and it's probably deeply rooted Mm -hmm. so into other aspects of their identity such as religion Mm -hmm. or age like all those things tie into you know what your thoughts are on the world and Mm -hmm. and how you see and whether or not you accept this type of thing or are okay or strong enough to speak up against it because you know that it's not right totally yeah um yeah the compound effect i think is extreme in ter- in those situations and i mean i also not even talking about like the trauma of leaving a, a country that, right that in and itself again like, if you're in if you're a refugee in that kind of way i mean i know that not everyone comes here as you know tr- in a traumatic experience but um So the next identity group that we'd like to chat about is women from the 2S LGBTQIA plus community. Um, I'm not going to define 2S LGBTQIA plus in in the episode, but we'll have that in the show notes um, and on the blog if you are so interested in reading it. Um, So because the majority of intimate partner violence awareness move. Uh, of the awareness movement has focused on heterosexual relationships, meaning between traditionally a man and a woman. Members of the 2S LGBTQ 
LGBTQ IA plus community have been largely left out of the movement and therefore of the stats and of the research and all that kind of thing. Uh, however, research, recent research shows that 2S LGBTQ IA plus members fall victim to domestic violence at equal or even higher rates compared to their heterosexual counterparts. These women are three to four times more likely than heterosexual women to report experiencing spousal violence. 49% of the sexual minority, so that's a quote unquote, uh, women indicate that they have been physically or sexually assaulted by an intimate partner since the age of 15, almost double what is reported wow. by heterosexual women. Yeah, that's nuts. So when we look at the stats for intimate partner violence then and kind of going diving even deeper and look at transgender women, they are just as staggering. Mm -hmm. So I think first it's important to note that violence against trans people and transphobic behavior and actions should really be its own episode. Mm -hmm. uh, similar to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and not just a mention, um, the violence against the transgender community is on the rise all over the planet. And I want to make it clear that it doesn't just start or end with intimate partner violence, but rather mm -hmm. is an epidemic of epic proportions. Oh, sure. Yeah. So we will dive into that on at a later date. Yes. But with that being said, in regards to intimate partner violence, transgender individuals may suffer from an even greater burden of intimate partner violence than gay or lesbian individuals even. Trans victims are more likely to experience threats or intimidation harassment, and even police violence within intimate partner violence. Trans people are more likely to have experienced violence since the age of 15. And in fact, three in five transgender women have experienced intimate partner violence since the age of 16. Like, it's come on. I know. It's crazy. I think also even if trans folks are feel safe enough to be them true their true selves right at that young of age like the fact that three and five are immediately not immediately but like are more prone to being in an intimate partner violence situation is nuts right like, yeah anyway it's yeah <sighs> just we're a, getting we're getting to the positive things this yeah, soon I promise just a big sigh um yeah and so on top of, you know, we talked about a couple of marginalized groups that are being the target of, of intimate partner violence. Mm -hmm. And another one is women with disabilities, which really hurts my heart. And I, these all hurt my heart. But when you're literally physically unable to defend yourself mm -hmm. because you have a disability, like we're, it's yeah. like, it's like, you know, impacting or violence against children almost be, not that dis people with disabilities are children, yeah, but like, yeah. Wow, you're like you can't even defend yourself full on physically because you're in a wheelchair, whatever it is, and this yeah. is what's happening. So, the stats are on women with disability are that they are three times more likely to experience uh, violent victimization than women without a disability. Uh, women with disabilities experience unique concerns such as increased difficulty leaving an abuser due to mobility or communication issues, greater difficulty accessing shelter, services and transportation, mm -hmm. higher rates of emotional abuse, being prevented from using an assistive device, so whether it's wheelchair or cane, um, abuse by, and there's abuses from their caregivers and from other residents. So whether they're in a home or a special place right. there, it's not just from their spouse. It's from all the other people in that environment that they have to have because they need the care. Right. Which That's is like even, that ableist view of, yeah, like, yeah, it's, that doesn't help the situation, especially when you feel like you can't even leave your own home because your partner, you're just then, stuck. Yeah. yeah. And so then we layer in 
on the topic of intersectionality, then we layer in location. So imagine you are um, so far away from getting help. Mm-hmm. Like you, first we talk about you can't because you can't physically get that help. Now we're talking about you're so far away and removed from services. So location where you are. When we look at uh, Saskatchewan, we have, like we mentioned, a lot of like we're a very rural, agricultural, mm-hmm. thriving city. Like you can watch your dog run away for days. <laughs> And um, so we have a lot of rural areas and this is probably why we have one of the highest rates of intimate partner violence because of so much rural. So specifically women in, living in rural areas um, are the target of gender-based violence. Mm. Um, and a lot of those cases go unreported because no one's noticing it happen. No one sees it happen and there's nowhere to report it. Right. Um, so the rate specifically impacting women living in r- rural or remote areas in Canada is 75% higher than those living in urban areas or cities. Um, and it's 56% higher for rural women, women living in Canada than the national Canadian rate. So it is mind boggling. Um, rates of violent crime against young women and girls are the highest specifically in Northern Saskatchewan. So in our Northern areas and also in Northern Manitoba, which is our province to the East, east. Um, <laughs> to the right, <laughs> to the right, to the left. Uh, these rates are five to six times higher than the southern areas of the province, which is really interesting, and higher um, yeah. than in the three territories. So again, higher than the three territories. Even. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, I think when we compare the territories in general to Saskatchewan, they are higher, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but um, but the northern specific yeah. community. And then in 2019, women in rural areas experienced the highest overall rates of IPV per our population per 100,000 people. So the highest, more than any other group, uh, with rates 3.5 times higher than men living in those rural areas as well. So Ugh. it is just like the rural areas. And then again, you layer on the different pieces, like a lot of in the Northern communities is indigenous women living in reserves. Right. So I can only imagine the intersectionality of those pieces. Oh, well, totally. In general. And I think even just like the fact, I mean, obviously I think the understanding is that it's like the lack of services and the lack of everything else. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So on that note, um, women living in rural and remote areas have a higher rate of struggling in silence due to the physical isolation from counseling services, hospitals, shelters, transportation challenges, Mm -hmm. communication barriers. Like they don't have cell phone service, internet access. Yeah. Like you're full on in the bush by yourself. You don't have support. Yeah. Who knows? We don't even have like, we used to have a provincial bus service that you can even get yeah, and like that have that anymore. anymore like if, so if you don't have a car or you don't have access to someone who can get you out to even like go to a counselor or go to something or d- even just escape it's your yeah i can't imagine what that would actually be like which is i mean not surprising and even more upsetting that these stats are so high and that they probably just continue to rise with like as services kind of continue to be cut in our totally province. yeah All right. So last but not least, we're going to chat about young women Um, and young meaning 15 to 24. If you're older than 24, you are still young. Um, This is just the category. So when we look at uh, women at the age they're most susceptible to being abused uh, or in an intimate partner violent relationship, a health or a World Health Organization report suggests that younger women and girls remain particularly at risk of such violence, with one in four women aged 15 to 24 suffering violence at the hands of an intimate partner by the time they reach their mid-20s. 
one of those who have been of those rather who have been in a relationship almost one in four adolescent girls aged 15 to 19 so that's 24 percent have experienced sexual and or physical violence from an intimate partner or a husband and then 16 percent of young women aged 15 to 24 experience this violence in the past 12 months yep so again, not even going down. We're still just, you know, kind of remaining status quo. Mm-hmm. Globally, almost one in three young women aged 15 and older have been subjected to physical and or sexual intimate partner violence, non-partner sexual violence, or both at least once in their lifetime. Yes. One in three. Yes. Wow. Uh, this figure does not include sexual harassment. So, like, that's just its own little beautiful right. category. Which we'll, yeah, probably get to in another episode. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, I was dying there for a second. Uh, so the rates of depression, anxiety disorders, unplanned pregnancies, sexual transmitted, sexually transmitted infections, and HIV are higher in women who have experienced mm-hmm. violence compared to women who have not, which right. I, I mean, I makes think sense. Is, yeah, makes yeah. a lot of sense, um, as well as at many other health problems that can last after the violence has ended. So it's not even just you're in the violent situation and that's what you deal with. I mean, it I follows you. Yeah. Like depression, anxiety. I think all of those things, disabilities, all those yes. things are compounded. Yeah. You can't get rid of them after. Wow. Yep. Wild. Oh, I'm not done yet. Current or former husbands or intimate partners perpetrate most violence against women. So more than 400 and sorry, 640 million wow. or million. 20 million <laughs> that's globally oh. million uh, or 26 percent of women aged 15 or older are subject to intimate partner violence 26 percent of women 15 and older are subject to intimate partner violence yeah you gotta wonder like it just makes me wonder what what is happening in these relationships that's yeah. causing so much violence. Like, why is it substance abuse? Is it just rage? Are they, what are they fighting? Like, what is causing so much contempt, so much aggression to end in violence? I don't yeah. understand. I, I mean, and again, that's like that the intersectionality of it all. Yeah. Is that like, there's all these probably compounding effects. And, and I, I sh- we should also mention that we're like not a man hating. No, of course not at all. And I mean, and, it can happen, you know, same sex. Yes. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but like what it's relationships, like it's intimate partner yeah. relationships. And what, what is so like yeah. what you're you're with this person for a reason why are they turning on you and ready to violently no, hurt you like i don't we speak to a lot of folks who uh have who work in second stage housing and second stage second stage shelters in saskatchewan but also those like kind of crisis shelters and um and i'm not i don't know the stat and i don't i don't want to say something that's not true but like it was significantly increased during right, covid during covid yeah. because people couldn't leave like they weren't allowed to based on the government yeah um and then also where are you gonna go like there's not really a lot of i mean you can maybe go to these shelters and that sort of thing but like it's just adds so many more layers of complexity in terms right. of like seeking out safety well and mental health got yeah, worse exactly. substance abuse went up yeah all the things yeah. the beautiful storm of shit <laughs> yeah shit hit the fan yeah yeah uh, as we all know yeah so yeah it is an alarming it just makes you it just makes me wonder what's happening yeah um 
And one other piece I, I don't want to forget because we are um, involved in a fundraiser for two local women's shelters mm-hmm. coming up this month. Um, but the shelter or the, the fundraiser is raising funds for um, pet friendly shelter mm-hmm. spaces. So one other aspect is that a lot of times when women are or tr- whatever are leaving their spaces, uh, be fleeing their spaces from intimate partner violence, they can't bring their pets. Yeah. Their pets are left. Um, and then that's like part of their family, leaving part of your family because you just have to leave because wherever they're going, their shelters, they don't accept pets. Well, so Um, a lot of them don't actually leave then because it's like, yeah, they don't want to leave their, yeah, they don't want to leave their pets, Mm -hmm. um, for fear of probably abuse as well. Yeah. Or yeah, they don't leave or they leave and they have to abandon their animals and then who knows what happens to them. So, uh, we're seeing a lot more awareness and funds being raised for shelters to accept animals. Um, not just as, you know, keeping them alive, but also like they're a major emotional support for these women. Yeah. Um, so something else to think about as well. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I guess what's then after all this negativity, yeah, after all of this, what's dun, happening? Dun, dun. What are we doing about it? Specifically in Canada. That's where that's where we are. So we're going to focus our stats about that. Yeah. Um, so it's costing, as we know, intimate partner violence is costing lives mm-hmm. all over the world. Um, and it's also costing the economy. In 2009, it was estimated that intimate partner violence has an economic cost of seven point four billion 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 you know, people can't work They're totally all the things, right? Like, so it impacts even the cost to like run shelters. Exactly. Yeah. Sexual violence, sexual violence has a cost of 4.8 billion annually. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. So you're probably thinking how many more people, like how many more people have to die to be hurt, to be murdered for us to get a move on and change this? Like, come on, enough is enough. Like what, what, how many more people have to die? Like, I don't understand. I just feel like also like, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the economy and everything right now. And like, not that this is the reason why our economy is, you know, maybe a little bit going down the toilet, but like, this is a huge factor. Huge. Huge. So, And like, like you'd think that this would, this in itself, the cost on the economy would be a major yeah. driving. I mean, sadly, the people dying. Okay. Yeah. But because it costs the economy so much, you'd think that'd be like, okay, let's let's uh, figure out a solution. Let's try something. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So Canada is doing something about it. Thankfully, last year in 2022, Canada launched the National Action Plan to end gender-based violence. It's a 10-year plan. Um, and it sets a framework for anyone facing gender-based violence to have reliable and timely access to protection services no matter where they live, which is great. That's great. So it's got five key pillars okay. uh, for support for the victims, survivors, and their families, which is great. Uh, the five kind of pillars are prevention, responsive justice system, implementing Indigenous-led approaches, social infrastructure, and an enabling environment. Um, so those are the five kind of areas. Canada is committed to 539 million over five years into this program, starting, like I said, in last year to support provinces and territories and implementing kind of this whole national action plan. Um, the government of Canada will continue to work with the provinces and the territories here to finalize bilateral agreements on crisis hotlines, building mm-hmm. uh, upon the government of Canada's commitment to providing approximately 300 million in emergency COVID-19 funding to support individuals who have experienced it during COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're still in the early stages of this 10-year plan. Yeah. Um, we, I mean, I can say that I've seen a ton of progress yet over the last year. I don't think the stats have shown that either, but we are hopeful. We're happy that there's a plan mm-hmm. um, and hopeful that they are measuring this plan every year, having yes. the milestones, watching, tracking, measuring, yeah. 
adjusting, pivoting as needed. I don't, if, if you, you will get to know us over <laughs> the next while, hopefully, but uh, we really love statistics. I don't know if you can tell by that. <laughs> and we really love like measuring things and mm-hmm. actually seeing the numbers. So uh, that's really important, I think. Um, also, I, I maybe when I was like a, a teenager, I was like, why do we have to just rely on the government all the time? Like, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But I think now understanding like how policy is impacted and how like when policy is put into place, people have to follow it. Like it's like becomes then the law and it goes into acts and all that kind of thing. So then, and then it becomes illegal not to do something about it. Right. And so like, well, I think it's frustrating for us because we're such like action people. We want to like, let's go, let's see this, let's see the change. Let's make it happen. Um, It's good at least that they're putting these kind of like over, overarching things in place to Mm -hmm. then create space and like to create the awareness also for then us to move forward and, stop this terribleness the only thing that's missing for me is that there's so much support for the victims which is great but what are we doing to prevent like what are we doing to um support the perpetrators like these people aren't doing it for a reason whether it's mental health substance abuse addictions there's got to be something to get to the root totally of course we need support for the victims but it's almost like a band-aid yeah you know what i mean like there's got to be something to stop it to begin with and i don't know if that if we've if that's covered in this plan or if that's a different plan yeah and i think that even something that you and i talk about a lot is like everything is so reactive and Mm -hmm. not proactive so if we could be a little bit more reactive or proactive rather with things then yeah we probably would see things you know the numbers go down a whole lot more. exactly so there are ways that we can do things i know we're not the government but we can we can influence policy Mm -hmm. we can do things to help um so uh what can we do so here's some tips yeah you want to share some tips yeah how about you share one sure. and then i can share another sure <laughs> uh first okay so first obviously be supportive i think mm-hmm. this is a no-brainer the most important thing we can do um because this is such a widespread issue um one in three women mm-hmm. like it's everywhere be supportive listen don't be judgmental um don't uh question or you know tear it away or say like that didn't happen let people tell their story own their own truth um remind them that violence is not their fault Mm -hmm. they deserve to be treated with respect no matter what um let them know they're not to blame if they they decide to stay do not judge them um this is the most valuable things you can do to offer a woman is being abused as is really just respect take them seriously link them to support services but ultimately it has to be their decision yeah totally Uh, So the next thing that you can do is learn more about relationship violence. So can you recognize the warning signs of abuse? Do you understand why many people don't press charges against their abusers? Uh, One thing that we would recommend and we kind of mentioned earlier is this bystander training. So a lot of nonprofit organizations focused on women and girls across the country offer it. And it Mm -hmm. can definitely help to just equip you with the tools to understand what this looks like and how to make those changes or at least be supportive to somebody who's going through those those circumstances for sure i know in saskatchewan and this is probably a canadian thing though the ywca offers the bystander training yes. so if you're looking the ywca is a national yeah. uh, organization so definitely check out their training and i don't know if it's even if you have to pay for it if it's free or what's i, I think it's free i think they even come into like organizations yeah yeah so something worth looking into um be aware of the risks 
So, so many abusers closely monitor their victims. They're stalking them. They're watching them. They're checking their phone calls, their emails. I mean, with technology, you, you can really hide that easily these yeah. days. So small acts such as leaving someone a voicemail or message can put people in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so be very careful about how you communicate with victims. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think also on that note, ensure your own safety. Mm-hmm. So yeah. don't put yourself in a place where you are unsafe. Never confront an abuser or do anything that puts you in danger or makes you feel unsafe. Uh, take care of yourself by discussing your feelings about the issue with a supportive, knowledgeable friend or professional. Don't put that back on the victim, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, do that with somebody else. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, find resources. So before you figure out your plan, like research, look into what's out there, um, get the number of the hotlines, the shelters, the YWCA, whatever it is that you, so you're ready to provide them with actual meaningful support versus kind of just, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Going, going through the motions. Exactly. Uh, choose the right place in the right time. Be thoughtful about mm-hmm. where and when to discuss your concerns. Choose a place where, first of all, you'll not be overheard either by the abuser yeah. or even just by people who don't need to hear what's going on um, and where there absolutely will be some privacy. And also don't choose a time when you feel unprepared or when they seem distracted or in a hurry. Make sure that there's that that kind of that safety for everyone. Totally. Great point. Um, voice your concerns, but be sensitive. Um, like don't give all the details about what you've noticed or why, or, you know, really put down that other, per- the, vic- the abuser, like they already know, yeah. uh, they don't give excuses or deny, just simply honestly, listen, mm-hmm. repeat what they're telling you, help them come to the understanding that they're in an unsafe situation and they need to get out. Yeah. And I think with that, put them in charge. Right. So don't expect to know all the answers because you're not going to, you're also not going to know all of the intimate details of their relationship. I think explore the best thing to do is explore options with them and don't try to take it over or tell them what to do. Um, and if you aren't sure what to do, simply encourage them to talk and listen without judgment. I think for a lot of people when they're like in a, even just for me, when I'm in like a state of, um, like worry or like I feel frustrated or anything. Sometimes the thing I don't want is for someone to give me like a, an answer. It's mm-hmm. like, I just need to vent. I just need yeah. to talk about it. I just need to like maybe come to the conclusion on my own. Yeah. Um, and I just need that sounding board. Totally. It's the, I, it's like marriage 101, but yeah. it's like, <laughs> do you want advice or do you want support? Like yeah. which one? And I mean, those come hand in hand, but like sometimes they don't want a solution. They yeah. just want yeah. you to listen. Yeah, totally. Um, last couple things are donate and volunteer. Obviously there's tons of women's shelters out there, which is very sad, but clearly we need them. Um, and so there's not enough money going around for these, for these shelters. A lot of them only have so many spaces and there's different types of shelters. There's crisis shelters where they go immediately when Mm -hmm. they need that support, but usually they're only in those shelters for a couple days and then they go to a long-term stay shelter. Um, there's not enough of these shelters for the Mm -hmm. amount of women that need them. There's many women who are fleeing and don't have a place to stay because there's not enough funding for these shelters. So definitely consider donating um, and volunteer at the shelters. You can mm-hmm. volunteer in their child minding sections. You can do all kinds of different things, volunteer for their fundraisers, for their boards, whatever it is. There's yes. lots of opportunities to yeah. get involved. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, thank you for joining us today as we confronted these terrifying and real statistics. Um, and please keep tuning in for more ways to make a positive impact against these scaries together. We can make the world a little less scary for women and girls. 
And just remember that change starts with awareness, which is what we're doing here, and action. So thank you for being part of the Scaries community and for making this world a little less scary to exist as a woman. So remember to follow us on Instagram at RaiseHerCo and Scaries.podcast and on TikTok at RaiseHerCo. Bye. Bye. Bye.